Good afternoon. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 19. And as you're turning there, or if you don't have a Bible, um, you can look at the sermon inserts and also it will be projected here on the projector screen. Uh, but we're finishing up our uh, last week in a four-week series uh, that we're calling Being Winsome to Winsome. Uh, it's a series on evangelism and witnessing. And uh, it's been my prayer for you all, for myself as well, that we're really challenged to see how seriously the Bible takes the Christian's role in sharing the gospel with others. And it's been a particular prayer that the Spirit was bothering you, that the Spirit was impressing on your heart uh, at least one name, one face, one person that you could reach out to, to share Christ with, to invite to the church. And so as we finish up this series, we're in our last uh, sermon that I've entitled A Winsome Savior. And so we're looking at Jesus' encounter with Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. So would you all rise as we give our attention to God's word as we receive what he has to speak to us today. Luke 19, verses 1 to 10. Please hear now the reading of God's holy word. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who was a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Friends, would you join me in prayer once more as we ask God's blessing upon our time? Uh, Holy Spirit, you are the author of the scriptures, and as you inspire the scriptures, you also illuminate the scriptures. And so give to us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to believe and understand all that you have to speak to us today. We pray, God, that this word would be encouraging to the saints. Uh, maybe it would be rebuking to us, some of us who need it. To others, Lord, that it would be a wellspring of life that nourishes us and what we need to hear Father, but above all, above our being blessed, above our uh, walking away encouraged, we pray that the preaching would be faithful to your name so you would receive the glory in all things. We pray and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, there once was a young salesman who was really disappointed that he had lost a big sale. And so he went up to his boss, the experienced sales manager, and he began to lament well, I guess this proves that you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. And the manager replied, son, take my advice. Your job is not to make him drink. Your job is to make him thirsty. The salesman's job is not to make anyone drink. It's to make them thirsty. So it is with evangelism. Your job is never to make somebody believe. 
It can't be because you don't have that power. But our job, your job is to witness, to evangelize, to testify in a way that people want to come to know the winsome Savior. You know, we can't make people drink of the living water, but we can work to help them see their thirst, to understand this longing inside of them. And so as we look at today's passage, here's our gospel truth, our one-sentence summary today. Our winsome witness is patterned after our winsome Savior. Our winsome witness is patterned after our winsome Savior. And so as we look at this text, if we look at this very well-known, famous story, I want to consider three things with you. I want to consider the inquiry, the invitation, and the impossible. And so let's begin with this first point, the inquiry. In verse 1, Jesus enters into Jericho and he meets a man named Zacchaeus. Now, Zacchaeus is introduced like this in verse 2. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. Now, that's an interesting description, but it tells us a few things. First, Zacchaeus as a chief tax collector meant that he was not just rich. That's an understatement. He was incredibly wealthy, incredibly wealthy, wealthy beyond our imagination, some of you may, the past couple of weeks, have seen that movie, Crazy Rich Asian. Um, he was the crazy rich tax collector. And as the chief tax collector, that meant that he was in charge of a whole region. He most likely oversaw the whole region of Jericho. But although he was rich, he was hated by so many. He was despised, he was rejected because his wealth was made off of other people. You see, the Romans had a system for collecting taxes from the local regions. What they would do is that they would, ha they would have a bid, and they would auction off the right to collect taxes in the local regions. And so whoever, whichever uh, Jewish tax collector bid the most had the right. They were like contractors, and they would have subcontractors, and they would be the ones who would go out into the towns and collect taxes. But so long as they give to Rome what Rome wanted, they were able to charge however much they wanted. So imagine that uh, Rome was asking for 10%. They had every right to go and request 25% to give the Rome the 10% and keep for themselves the 15%. And so you could see and imagine the frustration that the Jewish people had with Jewish tax collectors. If you've ever been on uh, Facebook or these social media, YouTube, you may have seen uh, videos or recordings of these uh, scammers who call people pretending to be the IRS. Have you ever seen one of these or heard one of these videos? They're all online, and it's actually really, it's, it's an incredibly evil thing. They're stealing money from people who don't know better, and it kind of makes you think, do these people have any consciences, right? They'll call and say, this is the IRS, this is how much money you need to give to us right this moment. And we listen to that, and we think, man, these people are awful. How are they human beings? But imagine with me for a second that these men, that in, in today's society, these men were actual government employees, and they were allowed to call you. They were allowed to collect from you however much they wanted. What if, what if these people actually did carry the full weight of the IRS and they could call you saying, you owe 20% more, you owe 30% more? I mean, you would hate these people. You would loathe them. And this is the kind of person Zacchaeus was to his fellow Jews. And so he was incredibly rich. He was hated for that reason. But even more, he would have been rejected because he would have been considered ritually and religiously unclean. 
As a Jew, he would have to deal a lot with the Roman officials, with the Gentiles. And so in, their, in his constant interactions with them, the Jewish people would have seen him and said, you are unclean. You're an unclean person because of your close association. So here's Zacchaeus. He, he, he is socially ostracized. He's morally corrupted. He's religiously marginalized and he's ritually dirty. And this all conf- is all confirmed in verse 7 when Jesus talks to him and the crowd's reaction is to grumble and say, this man is a sinner. And yet curiously, knowing all this about Zacchaeus, when Jesus comes into town in verse 3, it says, he was seeking to see who Jesus was. Now pay attention to what the text doesn't say. The text does not say, Luke does not say, he was seeking to see Jesus. It says he was seeking to see who Jesus was. Meaning this, Zacchaeus didn't know Jesus, but he was curious about him. He had most likely heard a lot of things about this new Jewish rabbi. Now what would Zacchaeus have heard? Most likely what's recorded in Luke chapter 7, verse 34. And there, the rumors, the gossip about Jesus is making a way it's across town. And what is it? People were saying this, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So imagine how this must have piqued Zacchaeus' interest. Because here was a Jewish rabbi who was so different than any other religious teacher he had ever met or ever heard about. Because this man didn't keep a distance from people like Zacchaeus. Instead, this man sat down and ate meals with people like Zacchaeus. He shared fellowship with him. This Jesus, who Zacchaeus had heard so much about, was not afraid about getting himself ritually unclean by being around the unwanted. This Jesus was somebody who knew God, knew his word, and yet he was safe to be around. He was somebody that sinners felt like, I could have refuge in his presence. Because Jesus' message of salvation was through faith and repentance, not a salvation through being set apart from the ungodly and unrighteous. So you can imagine Zacchaeus' appeal how interesting Jesus seemed to him. You know, even today, there are people, of course, who uh, are considered sinners like Zacchaeus. And usually they want nothing to do with the snobby religious type. We all know those types. The Zacchaeuses of our world today want nothing to do with those self-righteous churchgoers who look down at everybody from their long noses for not being as moral or as good as them. Isn't that true? The irreligious are usually turned off by the religious and their rules and their insistence on rituals and traditions and that's not the way we do it here at this church. But everything was different about this man named Jesus. Zacchaeus was intrigued and compelled by Jesus. So much so that he was willing to look undignified like a little child when he climbed the tree to see him. You know in Luke 15 about the prodigal son's father who is, uh, lifts up his robe and runs and you may have learned that Jewish men don't run. Well, what more Jewish men don't climb trees? That behavior is associated with children. It's the equivalent of, let's say, a family went down to Disney World and you spotted Goofy and your five-year-old child goes running after Goofy for a picture and for an autograph. Now that would be 
acceptable, that would be adorable. But imagine his 50-year-old father runs right past him, beats him to Goofy, wants a picture, insists on the autograph. That's a cause for concern. And Zacchaeus is so curious about seeing who this man is that his dignity no longer matters to him. So he climbs the tree to look. He wanted to see Jesus with his own eyes because he needed to know if everything he's heard is real. If everything he's heard about this man is actually true because if someone like Jesus actually did exist, that means there is hope for someone like Zacchaeus. And then it didn't matter how sidelined he was. It didn't matter how marginalized he was. If Jesus was real, then he could be welcomed and he could be wanted. So friends, let's pause here in sober reflection. The Jesus that you believe in, what's he like? The Jesus that you put your faith in, that you follow, what's he like? Is he the kind of religious leader who a follower of any other religion would look at and say, oh, I like this guy, he's moral, he's good, I like what he teaches. Or is the Jesus you believe in someone that other religious leaders would raise a suspicious eye to and say, what is he doing sitting with the unwanted, sitting with the religious outsiders? And I, I wonder this. The Jesus you believe in, the Jesus you walk with, the Jesus you love, is he a kind of Jesus that would arouse curiosity from people because he sounds so different than what the world makes him out to be? The way that you talk about Jesus, the way that you live your Christian life, does that make Jesus compelling? Does that make others go, wait a minute, I've never heard someone talk about Jesus like that. I've never heard someone talk about walking with Jesus like that. I've never heard someone talking about living faith with Jesus in that kind of way. Basically, I'm asking, is the witness you give to Jesus a witness to a winsome kind of savior? One who's more concerned about grace and forgiveness than he is about behavior and morals. Is there Jesus one who cares more about seeking and saving the lost than he is about how well you follow rules and regulations? Does your witness to Christ raise people's curiosity about Jesus? Who is this man? Or does it simply confirm what they thought they already knew about him? Second, the invitation. The invitation. Verse 5, Jesus is walking with a crowd when he stops and he looks up and imagine this strange sight to see a grown man. And he says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. Now, first, this sounds incredibly rude. How would you feel if you were on the side of the street and a stranger came and said, hey, I'll be over at five. I like chicken. <laughs> you would say, what nerves? Who, who are you again? You're coming over my place? Who invited you? And so we may think, oh, what Jesus is doing, that's a little weird, that's a little strange, that's a little rude, but that's not how the biblical audience would have interpreted Jesus' self-invitation. They wouldn't have read it through our modern conceptions and eyes of hospitality and etiquette. Uh, because when Jesus invites himself to Zacchaeus' house, it's not because he has no manners, it's because he actually knows there's no way that Zacchaeus would be able to invite Jesus over. 
that it was actually harder, more difficult for Zacchaeus to invite Jesus because it would have bro- broken all social norms, right? Jesus was a respected Jewish rabbi, and Zacchaeus was a well-known scumbag. He was a close affiliate with the Romans, and so the whole crowd understands how outrageous this is, and that's why they're grumbling. They know how unacceptable it is for a man in Jesus' position to eat with a sinner like Zacchaeus. Because to go to a house of a Gentile, or not a Gentile, to go to a house of a man who had such close affiliation with the Gentiles, man, that would be to expose yourself to something dirty. You know, growing up, my parents owned a seafood store, raw seafood, and so you can imagine how much seafood we ate at home. Fish every single day. And whenever you came over my house, you ran the risk of leaving with the smell of fish on you. And if you magically escaped without the smell of fish on you, there's no way you could escape without the smell of fermented cabbage on you. It was impossible. You were polluted. In the same way, if Jesus goes to Zacchaeus' house, he's running the risk of becoming socially, ritually, morally, and religiously polluted and stained. So everyone is grumbling, what is he doing? But Jesus has no concern with those social customs and human-made religious laws. Why should he be bound by them? Because the truth is this, if Jesus really wanted to stay away from impure and defiled people, he should have never left the throne room of heaven and come down to this earth. But he crossed that great celestial divide. He came to this fallen world. And what we see is that what he does in inviting himself over into Zacchaeus' house is actually a picture of what he did in inviting himself into our world. That he was crossing a barrier that none of us could cross. You see, Jesus invited himself into our house. He invited himself into our lives because he knew we could never reach him on our own. And this is exactly how salvation works. Jesus is always making the first move. He is always initiating. You know, there's a difference between the way um, a game of basketball or football starts and the way a, the game of chess starts. You know, in basketball, when you begin, you have two of the tallest players from the opposing teams come. You throw the ball, they both jump, and they try to tip it to their teammates. That's how the game begins. In football, you have the captain of the visiting team coming. You flip a coin you call heads or tails, and that determines who receives the kickoff. And in both these instances, either team can make the first move. You don't know who's going to get the ball, so to speak, to begin. But in the game of chess, no matter who you are, no matter where you're playing, no matter when you're playing, the white piece always goes first. That's just the way it is. Always goes first. When it comes to Christianity, no matter who you are, no matter where you are, no matter when you are, Jesus Christ always goes first. He always makes the first move into your life. He invites himself into your life because he's the initiator. And the thing is, when Jesus enters into your life, he doesn't simply run the risk of getting involved in the mess of your problems and issues. He doesn't only risk exposure to the muck of your sin. Instead, when Jesus Christ gets involved in your life, he's willing to take it all upon himself so that he could cancel the record of its debt on the cross. That's why 2 Corinthians 5 said that he who knew no sin became sin. He took on your sin. 
This is what the grace of God looks like. The God who pursues, the God who makes the first move, the God who initiates. He crosses boundaries to get us. And so in doing this, Jesus doesn't wait until Zacchaeus gets his life together. He doesn't wait until Zacchaeus proves himself worthy. Jesus is essentially saying, I'm coming into your life now. I'm not waiting for you to clean up your life. I'm not waiting for you to pretend like your, your life is some like HGTV show. I'm going to come in now while your dirty dishes are left undone, while there's unfolded laundry on your couch, while there's toothpaste stains on your mirror. That's when I'm coming into your house. Not when you make your life all nice and tidy so that I can come in. I'm coming into the mess of it. He's not waiting around for you to be hospitable enough for him. Why? Because he comes into your life with mop and room. He comes into your life to clean up your life. And this is why the crowd is so offended. They don't get that. They say, he has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus, he hasn't changed. There's been no reform in his life. He hasn't started doing religious things. His life is still greedy. His life is still selfish. And so it offends them that even though knowing that, Jesus makes the first move. Now, there's a confusing part in this in verse 8. Zacchaeus says to Jesus, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And this is why it's confusing, because the way Zacchaeus talks, it makes it sound like um, Zacchaeus is saying, God, Jesus, I've been doing this. Look, I've been helping the poor. I've been giving back everything that I owe to people. And so it kind of makes it sound like, oh, well, hasn't Zacchaeus been cleaning up his life? Isn't he kind of a good person? But that's actually a, a mistranslation. It's not, it doesn't bring out the fullness of the Greek because actually what Zacchaeus is doing is he's saying, God, I'm resolving to do this. He's saying, Jesus, here's my commitment. From now on, the half of my goods, I will start presently giving to the poor. If I've defrauded anyone of anything, I'm going to start returning it immediately. And it's important, it's important to get this order right because Jesus doesn't say, oh wow, you're doing all of that stuff? Today salvation has come into this home because if that's the case, then that's salvation by works. What Jesus is saying is, now that you have met me, now that, verse six, you have received me joyfully, the fruit of your life, the transformation of your life leads to a commitment to justice and generosity the sacrifice, and Jesus is saying, that is the proof, that is the fruit that salvation has come into this home. And so Jesus, when he makes the first step towards you, when he initiates towards you, it's not because you got your act together, it's not because you proved to him enough that, that you were serious enough to, to start changing your life. In fact, Jesus came into your life when you had no desire for him. When you had no will for him, he changed your heart so that you would start longing for him. And all of that, all of this meditation gets us to reflect on this one question. Who is the gospel for? Who is the gospel for? Who deserves the gospel being shared with them? It's not those who have their lives together. It's not those who are saying, okay, I'm serious now about this Jesus thing. Do you realize this, that right living is never the prerequisite for faith in Jesus? Because it was while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. 
So as a church, as a witness of Christians, are we making this clear to the watching world? And I think sadly, the church has done such an awful job at this. Because the church gives the appearance that only cleaned up people, only people who have their life together have a place in Christianity. We don't make the message clear enough about who we are, right? We are not a museum for saints. We are a hospital for sinners. And yet people come into their church and what we seem to be saying is, oh no, the church is a visiting, the visitor's area. We're the healthy ones. We're waiting for the other people to get their lives together. But that's not it at all. The church is the trauma center where the broken and the sick and the hurting need the care of the great physician. So many times we advertise the gospel as if there's a certain amount of minimum kind of holiness and godliness to qualify. But what we see here is Jesus is initiating. He's making the first moves toward people. And we need to pattern ourselves after him. So here's a question for you. Are you willing to do this? Are you willing to pursue after people? Are you willing to take the first step? Everyone, think of one unbeliever that you know. Think of one person that, who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you think, about, think of that person, when it comes to sharing the gospel, are you waiting for them to come to you first? Because if you're like me, selfish, scared, and weak, you're actually hoping that they have the courage and they have the boldness to approach you first. If Jesus said or thought the same way we did, if Jesus was waiting around for Zacchaeus to make the first move, man, he'd still be in that tree today. He'd be curious, he'd be inquiring, but he'd be passed over and ignored. You see, friends, the way that we live our lives and the way that we're being intentional about witness, you know, are we secretly hoping that God will make them bold and courageous to come and to approach us, to ask us questions, or are we praying that God would make us bold and courageous to go out to them? And think about that for a moment. And I know my excuse. My excuse is this. Oh, well, they know that if they have any questions, I'm willing to talk with them. Well, they know I'm a Christian, and so, you know, if they want to, they can come and talk to me. Friends, you're asking a lot from them. You can't always sit around and expect the doors to be flung open and people just falling into your arms. If Christ came and made the first move toward us, why can't we go and make the first move toward others? It's us who goes knocking on the doors of people's hearts. Which leads to our third and final point, the impossible. And this is my favorite point. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that because I wrote the sermon, but this is my favorite point, the impossible. Did you know that this story about Jesus and Zacchaeus is a miracle? It's a miracle. Now, I don't mean it contains a miracle, right? But what happens to Zacchaeus is just as miraculous as Jesus walking on water or turning water into wine. Now, what do I mean by that? Did you know that it was supposed to be impossible for Zacchaeus to be saved? It was supposed to be impossible. He was not supposed to be saved. So, let me explain a little more. Are there people in your life who, when you look at, um, that you tend to think that, they, that some have a, a higher probability of coming to faith and some have a lower probability of coming to faith if you were to share with them? Are there, 
Do you ever do this, that, that different people that you know, that you think like, oh, it'd be easier for this person to, to come to know Jesus, and, and this person, oh, geez, I don't, that's a real miracle. Do you ever think that way? You know, I'll take a moment and to confess. Where I live now, one of my neighbors, uh, she's this friendly, older, uh, African-American grandmother, and I always say hi to her, and the first time I met her, and just her warmth, I said, you know, she could probably come to faith. She could probably come to Jesus. She was nice. She was calm. Turns out she is a Christian. My other neighbor, single mother living with her adult son, always in a shouting match. I've learned new curse words from them <laughs> just by hearing. And deep in my heart, I really do think, man, it would be really impossible for them to come to Jesus. People like them probably don't want to know about Christ. Have you ever kind of judged and labeled people like this before? Possible, impossible. Probable, improbable. And if you've ever done that, when we think about Zacchaeus, what is he? Which one is he? He's exactly the person who wasn't supposed to come to faith. Do you know why? And this is where it gets, the Bible gets really beautiful. Luke is an author and he's stitching together a narrative. This is Luke 19, verses 1 to 10. But what happens right before Luke 19 is Luke 18. But Luke 18 has this very famous story of a rich ruler. In Luke 18, there's a rich ruler who came to Jesus asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And this is what Jesus says. He says, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. And this man's response, Luke 18, verse 23 but when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. This man, he loved his riches. He loved his wealth more than anything else in his life. And so he walks away very sad. But the story doesn't stop there because Jesus then says this statement. How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples hear that, and they're so overwhelmed, so they appropriately respond, then who can be saved? It's that impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom? It's like a camel going through the eye of a needle? And they say to Jesus, well then, who in the world can be saved if that's so impossible? And then Jesus says one of the most comforting, confidence-instilling, courage-giving things. Jesus says in response, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Jesus is saying, you are right. It should be impossible for a rich man to be saved. It's impossible, but I, only I can make such a thing possible. That's how Luke 18 reads. When you get to Luke 19, it begins, Behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And after just having read Luke 18, the reader's already thinking, here is another one of those impossible people. This man is a tax collector rich. That's a whole new level of rich. Getting him into heaven is like getting a dinosaur through the eye of a needle. But Luke 19 is contra contrasted with Luke 18 for a reason. Because it has this surprise ending. Because by the time we get to the end of the story in Luke 19, the impossible has happened. Jesus declares salvation has come into this home. 
You see, whereas the rich man was so sad because he had to sell all that he had and distribute to the poor, it says Zacchaeus joyfully declares, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. Zacchaeus was supposed to be somebody that it was impossible to get to believe, but Jesus does a miracle and brings him to salvation. What's going on here? Luke 19 is an illustration of Luke 18. Luke 19 is an illustration of what Jesus means when he says that what's impossible with man is possible with God. Jesus is the winsome Savior who will win all those he has come to seek and to save. And this is of so much encouragement, friends, because are there people in your life that when you look at them, you think there is no way that this person is going to come to believe. There is no way that this person is going to believe. You already anticipate, expect their rejection. Oftentimes it's legitimate. There are some people who are just so antagonistic to the faith. They're so angry. Other people are just so intimidating. They're so proud. They're so ingrained in their own religion. They don't listen. We can think of a million, billion reasons why it should be impossible for them to believe. But remember this. Oh, remember this. It is impossible for you. Oh, yes, it is impossible for you. But it is so very possible with God. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. He will win all that he means to win. After all, you were an impossible case. But the winsome Savior invited himself into your life, and he saved you to himself. So friends, do not lose heart over the people who we think it is impossible and improbable that they would ever come to believe. Some of you I know have been praying months, years, your whole lifetime for certain friends, certain family members to come to faith. I have a few of those in my own life. And I must remember this myself. For when I first came to faith in high school, I prayed diligently. I can say in total integrity that I prayed every day for certain people's salvation for 15, 16 years. Every day I never missed I, was, I would be on the verge of passing out and being so tired and the spirit would just prick me and I'd pray for this person, Lord, and I would go right to bed. But somewhere in there, I'll confess this, that I was growing weary and defeated and thinking, oh God, it is, I know you can do many things, but I don't know if you could do this one. And to you who are praying and seeking and witnessing Do not lose heart, for what is impossible for you is possible with God. And so, friends, let me close with this story. This is told by Pastor Phil Riken, who used to pastor 10th Presbyterian down in Philadelphia. And he tells the story, there was a team of linguists uh, with Wycliffe Bible translators, and they were down in Brazil, and they were working among a people who spoke the uh, Miamande language. And they were finishing translating the book of Luke when they began recording the soundtrack to this evangelistic film, a very popular film called The Jesus Film. And they found this man who just had this rough kind of voice that they thought met the part of Zacchaeus. Uh, But this man was known in the community for being really greedy. He was a profiteering scoundrel who knowingly just ripped people off to make more money. And as he was reading, there's this portion in Luke where our translation says, if I have uh, defrauded anyone, but their translation said, if I stole 
But when he got to the part where he was supposed to say, uh, those from whom I stole, he couldn't bring himself to say the word, so he kept saying, uh, for those from whom he stole. And they would say, no, 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 it's I stole. And he's like, no, that's what I said. And they're like, no, no, you have to do it again. And he would record and he would say, he stole. And they're like, no, it's I stole. And he got so mad because this man could not bring himself to confess, even if just reading that it was he who was stealing. So the man up and left. said, I'm not finishing the recording. And he left the room. Well, when the project was complete and the film was shown, they played it at this school and all the village was invited. It was a crowded room. And the man who read the part of Zacchaeus was there. And near the end of the film, uh, Jesus is shown struggling as he's uh, bearing the weight of the cross. He's paying the price for our sins. And there in the middle of the crowd, the man began weeping as he was convicted of the love of the Savior who died for his sins. What was impossible to every person in that village was very possible to God. And so as we close this series, I just want to end with two concluding thoughts. The first is this. Our confidence rests in the winsome Savior. This is a point we've said over and over again, but God himself does the work of heart change by the work of his spirit, the power of his spirit, making things impossible to us, very possible to him. So don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. You have a rude neighbor? Don't lose heart. You have a difficult boss? Don't lose heart. You have a complaining coworker? Don't lose heart. You have an awkward classmate? Don't lose heart. You have a hostile family member? Don't lose heart. You have an uninterested gym buddy? Don't lose heart. You have an antagonistic tennis partner? Don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. For our confidence is in the winsome Savior. All that he is seeking, all that he is saving, they will be found. Second, God uses your winsome witness as his means of saving sinners. God uses you and your witness to save sinners. There is no other way. There's a reason that Jesus said in John 14, verse 12, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these he will do. It's an incredible statement where Jesus says his disciples who believe in him will do a greater work than he does. And you think, how is that possible? Until you get to Acts chapter 2, verse 41. On the day of Pentecost, the apostles share the gospel, and this is what it says. Those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. I don't know if you know this, but in this first day of the early church, more people were saved in the first day of the early church than all of Jesus' three-year ministry. And that was by his design. That through our winsome witness, that he would save more than some. So our winsome witness is the vehicle God has chosen to deliver his saving message of Jesus Christ, starting in your home, spilling out into your neighborhood, and reaching the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the way in which um, you not only encourage us with the ways that we are supposed to go after others, but we stop and we remember, oh Lord, before anything we're called to do, the way in which you pursued us. We were the impossible case. Ephesians 2 says we were dead in our sins and transgressions, so you didn't merely, Lord, spare us, 
save us from drowning, but that you took our dead heart and you breathed into us the newness of life. You came after us. You made the first move. Even when we were running away, you pursued us. And I pray, God, that as we really are people who are grounded in that gospel, transformed by it, that our motives, our perspectives, everything we do is now, Lord, fueled by what you have done for us. And so help each one of my friends here, God, myself included. Oh, Lord, would you help us to be winsome in our witness as we point to the winsome Savior. Our confidence is in you and you alone, oh, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all. Amen. What a Savior. Friends, now receive God's benediction. Now may the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the love of God, the Father Almighty, and the fellowship of His Holy Spirit be with you all, both now and forevermore. Amen. Hear now the dismissal from Hebrews 12, verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Go in peace, my friends.